Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 44 through 49. Some of you might have seen Laurie hand me my notes just a minute ago. You've wondered who's been writing my sermons the last 13 years. It's been revealed. She uh, whispered words of confidence in the word of John Calvin with all this when she said, good luck. So I think my magnets are gone. And I'll be trying to hang on to some of my notes. But before we look at our text, just want to remind you, on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door. And in that, he called for a reformation, a reforming of the church to return to the gospel of grace and the word of God. And the five cries of the reformation, the five solas, if you will, were sola scriptura, that the Word of God is our only rule of faith and practice. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. All to soli deo glory, to God alone be the glory. The Word of God proclaims to us today as it did back then and even as it was written. That salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we all might live to the glory of God alone. We celebrate that great reformation, and we live in the wake of it by the continued work of Christ through his Holy Spirit and his church. So with that in mind, look at Luke chapter 23, verse 44. Out of reverence and respect for God and his word, let's stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out in a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled at this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him with, from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that through the ministry of your word, through the ongoing ministry of your Holy Spirit, that the truths revealed in this text concerning the power of the gospel and the power of the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ would take deep effect in our hearts and have a profound effect upon our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Jesus Christ stands at the focal point of all of human history. In Western culture, even A.D. 2020 points to him. A.D. stands for Anno Domini in Latin, in the year of our Lord, pointing to the year in which Christ was born. B.C. stands for before Christ. Jesus' arrival stands at the very center of our understanding of human history. And if the birth of Christ, the arrival of Christ, Christ was a momentous occasion, how much more so the cross of Christ. The cross was the purpose for which he came. 
It was the purpose for which he set his face like a flint to Jerusalem. It was the purpose for which the Father sent his Son. One commentator stated it well, the most sacred and solemn hour of crisis in the history of mankind arrived when Jesus, as the Lamb of God, had to suffer upon the cross and above all bear the wrath of the Holy Almighty One against the sin of the world. That sacred and solemn moment in human history has arrived. The hour of Jesus' execution is here. And what we see in these brief few verses is the power, the effect of the cross. And we see it in at least three ways. We see the power of the cross evidenced in the darkness over the land. It was the sixth hour. That's, that's noon. And the sun has reached its zenith. And yet darkness fell over the land. Some would want to attribute this maybe to a, a, full, a full solar eclipse. But it was Passover. It's a time of full moon. The moon is in the wrong position for a solar eclipse. Furthermore, solar eclipses don't last that long. Some of you remember the, the full solar eclipse three years ago. It was incredible. It got dark in the middle of the day, but only for seven and a half minutes. This is three and a half hours from noon to three in the afternoon. The brightest part of the day, and it turned dark. It's doubtful the darkness was due to any natural phenomena, solar eclipse, sandstorm, or anything else, but rather by the supernatural hand of the living God. The timing of the darkness was intended by the Father to teach us something about what was taking place on the cross. First, the darkness reminds us of the depth of sin and the power of Satan. The crucifixion of the innocent Son of God was the most heinous crime in all of human history. Later, Luke, in the book of Acts, would remind us of what Peter said, you crucified and killed Jesus at the hands of lawless, the hands of wicked, the hands of godless men. Jesus prophesied of this day just a couple of chapters earlier in Luke's gospel. He said, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay your hands on me, but this is your hour, the power of what? Darkness. The profound evil of sin and of Satan were displayed in this darkness at noonday. Second, the darkness reminds us of the profound mourning and sorrow that this scene evokes. Amos, 750 years earlier, had prophesied of this day. Listen to his words in chapter 8. And on that day declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentations. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end like a bitter day. Just a few verses earlier, we read of the women who were weeping on the way to the cross, and now in verse 48, of those who left that scene beating their breasts in sorrow. Truly, the darkness reminds us of the depraved evil and the deep mourning, but ultimately the darkness was a sign of profound judgment upon 
sin. That's what was taking place on the cross. Zephaniah prophesied of this day of judgment. Oh, day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. The darkness as Jesus hung on the cross was indeed a reminder of God's holy hatred of sin and his judgment upon that sin. Now that dreaded judgment was being poured out on his one and only son. We've seen from Psalm 88 in the past that the psalmist was experiencing a dark night of the soul. He was depressed. He was overwhelmed by the darkness of living in a fallen world. If you go back later this afternoon and read Psalm 88, you'll realize the entire theme running throughout was of darkness. The first verse to the last and everything in between speaks of utter darkness of the soul. In fact, the very last word in the Hebrew text is the word darkness. It's as if the psalmist is so depressed and so down and so living in the dark that he feels that God's, God's countenance has escaped him, that God has somehow turned out the lights, walked out of the room, and shut the door behind him. James Boyce, who once pastored 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, said, it's good that we have a psalm like this, but it's good we only have one. You see, Psalm, 7, psalm 88, unlike other psalms that end on a note of hope, don't do so. They end on a note of darkness and despair. Why? Why is it good that sometimes we have a psalm like this? It's because we too may experience the dark night of the soul. We too may experience deep depression and discouragement in this fallen world. We too at times may feel as though God has turned out the lights and walked out of the room and shut the door and we can see and feel nothing of the smile of his grace or the countenance of his face. But in those moments of despair, in those dark nights of the soul, we can remember the darkness surrounding the cross was much more profound than what we could ever experience in this life. And that in that darkness of evil and of mourning and of judgment, it fell upon Jesus. That darkness fell upon Jesus for our sakes so that at the moment of history, the Father did turn out the lights on him. The Father did, in essence, walk out of the room and shut the door, if you will, as the innocent Son of God bore the judgment for my sin and your sin so that we can sing with Isaac Watts, knowing that that judgment will never fall upon those who are in Christ. Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man, the creature's sin. In this hour of darkness, the Father wanted to remind us in the cross of the darkness of sin and of judgment and the work of Christ. But there was another miraculous event that took place. It wasn't just the darkness that covered the land, but the rending of the, the curtain. The power of the cross was evidence in the rending of the curtain in 
the temple. Luke tells us the temple, in the temple that curtain was torn in two in verse 45. The veil of that temple separated the holiest place from the people of God who gathered together for worship. That holy place in the temple was patterned after the holy of holies in the tabernacle of the wilderness. In that holy of holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant in that room where only the high priest could enter once a year. The Ark was about a four and a half foot long, two and a half foot high, two and a half foot wide box covered in gold. And in it was a golden urn of the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the stones of the covenant. The top was a lid of pure gold, and on either end of that top of pure gold were two angelic beings, two cherubim carved out of gold, facing each other, looking down upon on the top of that, that lid. The cherubim remind us of the holiness of God. We sing, do we not, in that hymn, Holy, 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 cherubim and seraphim falling down before him. And so here are these two carved golden angelic beings looking down upon that, the Ark of the Covenant, seeing what's inside, knowing that what's inside that, that covenant, the law of God, we have broken and we deserve judgment because of the sin that we've committed. But once a year, the high priest would enter that room with the blood of a sacrifice bull. And he would shed that blood on top of that ark as if to say, through the coming work of Christ, your sins will be covered. They will be atoned for. And the justice of God will be fully satisfied in that sacrifice. And the top of that ark was called the mercy seat. What a beautiful, glorious picture of the work of Christ. And, and behind this veil, all that took place, the, the people couldn't see it. As the high priest went in, the people stood outside in hushed silence, waiting for him to emerge safely, wondering if their sins had been truly atoned for. That massive curtain that stood between the people of God and, and God himself was a warning sign thus far and no more upon the pain of death. But as Jesus hung on the cross, darkness fell and that great curtain that magnificent massive veil of separation was miraculously torn from top to bottom Matthew and Mark tell us not simply from the weight of that curtain but by the hand of God the curtain in the Old Testament was 30 by 30 30 feet high 30 feet wide four inches thick according to tradition but the Herodian temple patterned after Solomon that curtain, according to the historian Josephus, was 60 feet high and 60 feet wide. And it separated people from their God. But this magnificent, massive veil has been torn in two from top to bottom. So what's the significance for us? And the work of Christ as he hung on the cross, the writer of the Hebrews explains, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his 
flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance with our hearts, not the top of a box, but with our hearts sprinkled by the blood of Christ from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Earlier in Hebrews, the writer reminds us, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet was without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness through the work of Christ. That means there's no hindrance. No longer do we have to live at a distance and in fear of this God, but we can draw near to the very heart of God through the work of Christ. The torn curtain was a dramatic demonstration of the abrupt end of the Old Testament sacrifices because that blood of bulls and goats is no longer needed. Why? Because the Lamb of God has shed His own blood for us. That means Jesus is now our mercy seat. Jesus is our access to God. And so John Newton penned these wonderful words, Approach my soul the mercy seat where Jesus answers prayer. And there I humbly fall before His feet for none can perish there. So we no longer have to live at a fearful distance of God, but through faith in Christ can boldly approach Him. And with this work of Christ being done, the darkness has fallen, the curtain has been torn into demonstrating His work is complete. Jesus prayed from Psalm 31, Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, Luke tells us, He breathed his last. Jesus' entire life was lived for this purpose, for this hour, for this time. It was one of submission to do and accomplish the Father's will. And now the profound effects of this cross were being evidenced. In the darkness, in the torn curtain, and finally the power of the cross was evidenced in the conversion of of the centurion. In verses 46 through 49, we read of that conversion. I believe, along with many others, this man genuinely came to faith in Christ. And this conversion is a reminder, is it not, of what Paul said in Romans. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe, first for the Jew and then for the Gentiles. Because here is a pagan Gentile, a centurion, who probably oversaw the crucifixion coming to faith in Jesus Christ. But what did he see? What did he hear? What had a profound impact on him? Did he hear Pilate's words, his repeated words that Jesus was innocent and did not deserve death? Did he hear the words of warning of Jesus uttered to those ladies on the way to the cross? Did he hear Jesus cry, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do? Did he hear the promise to the believing thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise? Certainly he saw the suffering of the Savior. He read the sign hanging over his head, this is the King 
of the Jews. We don't know all the details of what he saw and what he took in, but Luke does tell us. Now, when the centurion saw that he had t- what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly, this was an innocent man. Here is a pagan, hard-hearted, Gentile centurion publicly praising the God of Israel. He's declaring Jesus to be not simply innocent, but the Greek word is technically righteous. This man is righteous. Mark tells us he went on to declare truly, this was the Son of God. I will tell you that not only the sovereign, saving grace of God can powerfully change such a life as this man. Only the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit can grant a new heart to a hardened man and turn a former blasphemer into a faith-filled believer. We have testimony of the power of cross through the believing thief on the cross beside Jesus. Now, through the centurion, they've experienced the life-changing power of the cross. But you know, this profession of faith was not the only response of everyone gathered there. We read in verse 48 and 49, many went home and they were overwhelmed with grief for what had taken place, but, but that's not necessarily belief and repentance. They had come to see a spectacle. Many of the followers of Jesus and the women were still standing at a distance. Others wandered and watched. What happened to them? Have you ever wondered what happened to those standing around the cross? Were other hearts and lives changed by the power of the gospel? Luke, in his second volume in the book of Acts, in chapter 6, tells us what went on to take place in Jerusalem through the power of the cross. We read in chapter 6, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests. Did you hear that? A great many of the hard-hearted, unbelieving enemies of Jesus' priests became obedient to the faith. It wasn't just the thief on the cross. It wasn't just the centurion, but thousands of others, including the priest, who once so vehemently opposed Jesus, who came to a saving knowledge of him. But that didn't mean that in Jerusalem the persecution let up. It continued In the very next chapter, in chapter 7 of Acts, Stephen was brutally beaten and stoned to death by a crowd filled with anger and hatred of the resurrected Christ. And we read there that devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This man named Saul, who an enemy of the church, was there holding the cloaks of those stoning Stephen. But many of you, if not all of you, know that that's not the rest of the story. The apostle Paul, Saul, was later wondrously converted by the power of the cross and the great persecutor of the church became the great promoter of the gospel of grace. As he wrote his first letter to young Timothy, he gave an abbreviated version of his testimony of the power of the cross. 
And this is what he said. The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, of whom I am the worst, of whom I am the chief. But, but, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, the worst, the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience and his example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Do you hear what Paul is saying? Do you hear the testimony of the thief on the cross? Do you hear the voice of the centurion and the thousands of others and the priests? If God can save us, He can save anyone. If He can save us in our deplorable, hard-hearted, hell-bent conditions, then the power of the cross and the gospel of grace can save anyone. I hope that gives you great confidence. Not only reason to praise our God, but reason to promote through our lips and our lives, the gospel of grace. You see, it is the gospel that's the power of God. It is the message of the cross that is the power of God. It is not based and rooted in your power of persuasion or in the attractiveness of your personality. People will never come to faith through that. They come to faith as the Holy Spirit empowers the message of the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it should cause us to proclaim with boldness and to pray for the lost, for those that maybe you wrote off years ago as lost causes, to pray that God would open their hearts and their eyes to believe and trust and rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. It encourages us to pray even in a dark hour in our culture, to pray with the prophet Isaiah. I love his prayer, his plea before God in Isaiah 64. Isaiah prayed this, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That you would rend the heavens and make your presence known. That you would rend the heavens and call the earth to tremble at your presence. And ultimately, my friends, Isaiah's plea was answered. Not in God rending a curtain, but in God rending the heavens. And he did come down in the person and work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so based upon him, we can continue to pray, Oh God, rend the heavens and send your spirit down upon our darkened hearts. Rend the heavens and send your spirit down upon our darkened land. Bring again, would you, O oh God, reformation. The 1500s were a dark, dark, dark time in human history. And yet it was the light of the gospel that burst forth in the Protestant Reformation as hundreds of thousands were converted through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh God, rend the heavens and would you bring revival. Rend the heavens and bring revival as you did in the first and the great awakenings in the 1700s and 1800s in our culture when hundreds and thousands came to faith in Christ. Oh God, would you rend the heavens.
for the glory and honor of your name. And so we pray with confidence of what took place on the cross. That, oh God, would you rend the heavens as we simply preach and proclaim the power of the cross to a lost and dying people. Let's pray together. Father, we ask, we pray, we plead that just as you rent the heavens and sent forth your Son on that dark and dismal day, as he took upon himself our sin and grief, as he paid the penalty in full, and as that curtain was torn, giving us full and free access, joyous access into your presence, and as we saw the conversion of the thief and the centurion, Lord, we know they were only the first fruits of the gospel and that we are even gathered here this day as those who've been redeemed by the blood and power of the cross. We give you thanks, we give you praise. And oh God, we do plead as we lift high the cross, as we sing of your praise, that once again, you would rend the heavens and send forth your spirit upon our dark hearts and upon our dark land that your glory and presence might be known to the glory and praise of Christ, our King, our Lord, and our Savior. Amen.